0: Bible's with me to the book of Obadiah. Obadiah. If you're visiting, we've been walking through a series on the minor prophets. And I told Casey earlier, I'm confident that this is what they would have used in Israel for baby dedication days. They would have used the book of Obadiah. Just kidding. Absolutely not. But the Lord's Word speaks at all times. And so we'll be in the book of Obadiah this morning. And if you'll also open your worship folder... As I told you last week, and I'd like to remind you, there is a, a white sheet of paper folded there, and that—that that is the notes that you could be using, and hopefully will be helpful to you as we walk through this book. In the book of Obadiah, we see the kindness and severity of God. The kindness and severity of God play out as God faithfully redeems and faithfully judges. We've seen this throughout the minor prophets, and it's a, it's a continuous theme that our God faithfully redeems His people, but He also faithfully judges the wicked. We should hold this in equal, these in equal balance, that He will redeem, but He will also judge. I've given you at the top of your notes there a little background to the uh, to the nation that we will be talking about this morning. Obadiah is a unique book because it doesn't address necessarily Israel or Judah or the group of God's people, but it addresses a nation known as Edom. Now, if you think back to the book of Genesis, this, this nation of Edom came from one of Isaac's children. Isaac's children, you'll see in these verses in Genesis is where we learn where the nation of Edom comes from. In Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, God t- talks to Rebekah. Rebekah is Isaac's wife, and he, God says to her, two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, if you remember the names of these two children, this was Jacob and anybody? Esau, that's right, Esau. Now, look at Genesis 25:30. These are all in your notes, so... And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. See, it's completely clear, isn't it? He wants to eat red stew, so his name is Edom instead of Esau. No, the, the word Edom actually in the Hebrew means red. Red. Actually means red. So there's this red stew, and he is exhausted. And if you remember, this is the point where Jacob asked Esau to sell him his birthright, to sell him his birthright. And Esau is so hungry that he's willing to do that. And so for this red stew, he exchanges his birthright, his birthrights. And so Jacob receives all these rights of the firstborn. All these rights. And so the relationship between the nation of Israel, which is represented by Jacob, if you remember, Jacob was called Israel by God, and then Edom, which is represented by Esau, would remain in tension. The tensions that developed between these two brothers because of Esau's willingness to sell this birthright and Jacob receiving all the rights of the firstborn, the the tensions that began there would continue, would continue throughout history. So let's look at what plays out between Israel and between this nation, Edom. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 2 through 6. I believe these should be on the screen. They're coming up? Are they not? All right. There they are. So the Lord says, this is when the people of Israel are wandering in the wilderness. He says... To Moses, you have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau. Remember, these, pe- these nations are brother nations. Both of them have received circumcision. They live in Sierra and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. Notice what's happening. God has taken care of the nation of Edom. He's taken care of the people of Esau. You shall purchase food from them for money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them for money that you may drink. And so we see God trying to preserve a kind relationship between these two nations. But if you were to look to Numbers 20, which we will not walk all the way through, the Edomites refused to let the Israelites walk through the land. They refused to. And so the covenant kindness that these brother nations should have shown to one another, the land of Edom breaks. And they are not faithful in that. God still never disowned this, these people. In Deuteronomy 212, it says that God gave them this land. God preserved them. But later in the history of Israel, we continue to see these tensions grow. And we see the nation of Edom being harsh and wrongfully treating the nation of Israel. Amos chapter one, verse eleven. Thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. This was the treatment of the nation of Edom towards Israel. They would invade them. They would kill their people. They would even drag them off and make some of them their slaves. While they should have shown covenant kindness, they were harsh. And they wrongfully treated them. So, as we look at the book of Obadiah, we see God calling out the nation of Edom that they will be held to account for how they have treated Israel. Now, as we look at this, as we look at this, we need to recognize that the battles in the Old Testament, you're gonna see that these Edomites, they're gonna be defeated. And so, sometimes we would look at these as just normal battles, like we root for a home team. And so it's Israel just rooting for themselves. But that's not what's going on here. Battles in the Old Testament are theological in nature. It's one God against another God. Whose God is better? Whose God is stronger? You see this very clearly if you go back to 1 Samuel. If you remember when David first steps on the scene, David first steps on the scene, there's this man out in the field named Goliath. And he's calling out, asking an Israelite to come forward and to fight him. And you know what David asked? His question is, Who is this that defies the armies of God? You see, the the battle was theological. If the Philistines would have won, it would have said the God of the Philistines is stronger than the God of Israel. And so David is passionate. He wants to show that the God of Israel is stronger than the God of the Philistines. Also, David would say to the Goliath, I have come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And David gives God all the credit for the defeat in the end. David, a little man, is able to defeat this large man, and he says, it is because of the Lord his God. So as we look at Obadiah, and we see this battle ensuing, we shouldn't think this is just about Israel rooting for themselves. It's a theological thing. It's... Whose God is stronger? Who's in control? Who's in control? And what we'll see is it is the God of Israel, Yahweh, who comes to us in the form of Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you to stand, and we're going to read Obadiah together. Notice how Obadiah receives this word from God. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not, on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by a slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever." On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners carried, entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken." Those in the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharid shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. You may be seated. God, we thank you for the book of Obadiah. Lord, it is interesting and difficult in many ways, and so I pray by your Spirit that you would give us clarity. I pray that no one has given up already. God, I pray that you would speak very clearly to us, that you would show us that your word is always practical, that it always bears implications for our lives. Lord, speak very clearly, God, and may we submit and obey to you. Thank you for your salvation in our Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son. Lord, we thank you that you are God, that you are mighty. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. As we look at Obadiah, there are two main points we want to look to. One, that God is sovereign over the nations. God is sovereign over the nations, and as we have with every minor prophet thus far, we will look at the eschatological hope. Eschatological, what does that mean? Remind us, remind the visitors. End times, that's right, eschatos, the end times. The, the prophets begin to speak to the end times, and we will look at the promises for God's people, the promises for God's people. As we look at God's sovereignty over the nations, the first point, of looking to your notes, the first thing we see is that God brings good out of evil. Look to verse 1, look to verse 1, the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations, rise up, let us rise, let us rise against her for battle. Remember that Edom has done wickedly. Edom has done wickedly in God's intention. His promise is that he will judge the nation. And so what God does is there's, there are these wars that are going on. And so from the outside, from a lot of people's perspective, it just looks like all these nations doing what they always do, waging war against other nations. But from a theological perspective, what God is saying is, I am using the wars of these other nations who don't even know me as my judgment as my judgment on evil, on wickedness. And so we see God influencing nations, using the wickedness of other nations who don't know him, who don't call on him, using it for good, for the judgment of these wicked ones. They will wipe them out and they don't even know Yahweh. But Yahweh says, I am in control and I am stirring this up for my glory and my purposes. God is the only one who can bring good out of evil. He is the only one who brings good out of evil. I wonder if we recognize this in the midst of wars, in the midst of an economy that's crashing. Do we think about, God, how are you working all things for your glory and for your good? You see, as we look to the Scriptures, we don't see a God who's absent from some things but then involved in some other things. We see a God who is in control of all things and who is working all things for His name and for His renown. He's calling on nations. He's using nations who don't even know Him. And so I wonder, as we look out to the circumstances that go on in our lives, do we trust that God will bring good out of situations that seem very evil? Seem very difficult. This is clear. This week, I don't know if many of you saw in the news. There was a a, a man in Iran, in Iran who has been sentenced to death. He's a believer, a believer who's been sentenced to death. And in the midst of this, many people are, are you know talking about how harsh it is and how bad it is. But the incredible thing is to listen to Christians. To Christians who say, and and even news from this guy, who in the opportunities to recant his faith says, I cannot turn. I cannot turn. And you see God using a situation like this, a man that possibly will die for his faith, to spread his name even further. To spread his name even further. You see Christians coming together all this last week through social media. Social media this last week was used for the glory of God. I want you to know. It was. And so God was using a situation where Iran was acting wickedly. These people were acting wickedly. And he will use this to make his name greater for his glory. Paul in Philippians chapter 1 verse 12 through 14. These verses I absolutely love. Paul says to the believers in Philippi. Paul is in prison. Remind you. I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul is in prison, and he's saying, this is good. I want you to know that what's happened to me is turned out for good. People around here have come to know Jesus, and then you have been strengthened to proclaim the word even more. How is God bringing glory out of your difficult circumstances? How is the gospel being go, gone forward because of your difficult circumstances? Do you rejoice? Do you see how God is working all things for good? I wonder how this is happening in your life. If you look for that, God also judges the prideful. We see a God who brings good out of evil who is in control of all things. And then we see a God who judges the prideful. Look to verse 2. He says concerning Edom, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. God is going to judge the people. Also, verse 10, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. This is the judgment that's coming. Why is this judgment coming? It's very, very clear. They had pride first in their location and where they lived. You saw that it talked about they're among these cliffs. They're dwelling like eagles that Like nest on high. Well, the, the land of Edom was a very rocky land. It was very mountainous. And so the people were able to build their homes and their shelters in these places that were hard to access by enemies. And so the land of Edom had begun to think that no one can access us. We could destroy anyone they had pride in their location. The Verse 3, they say this, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Verse 8, they had pride also in their education, and their wisdom. God says, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? They thought they had wisdom, and they had pride in this. They had pride in their strength. Verse 9. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. You see that this nation had grown extremely prideful, trusting in all their own resources. What's interesting is that by 312 B.C., Edom was no longer a nation. Edom was destroyed. They were judged. God keeps his promises. But it's also important for us to connect this, to look at this, how pride has implications in our own lives. Do we have pride in our location? Do we feel safe? Do we think our location provides us safety? Do we think our education provides us all that we need so that we can get out of circumstances or get into whatever circumstances we want to? Do we have pride in our strength and our youthfulness? These are things that apply to us. 1 Corinthians 1:27. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. You see, God doesn't act in accordance with our wisdom or with our strength. And this is why one reason we should not be prideful. Also, in the same chapter, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We have no reason to be prideful. No reason. James 4, 6. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You see what God does as he did here and what he will do now is he will humble those who are proud now. Those who are humble now he, he will exalt later. This theme continues. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourself and God will exalt you. In our society, hum- humility is not considered a great trait. But in the Bible, we see that humility in God's people is not uh, something, it's false. It's actually just being honest about who we are and about who God is. Humility is saying, I am a sinner and God is great. Humility is saying, I need God. This is just a true, truthful confession. And that God is enough. He is sufficient. He is sufficient. Denying the gifts God's given us is not humility. Humility. But acknowledging God as the source is. It's simply bowing before and resting in God's grace and His greatness. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, which many of you are familiar with, wrote one section entitled, The Great Sin. The great sin that he's speaking to is pride. I would encourage all of you to take a look at it, but I want to read a few excerpts from this now. C.S. Lewis says, I don't think I have ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. He he says, I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. You see, people who are not believers would have difficulty saying, I'm prideful. I struggle with pride. They think it's just normal. They think it's confidence. But C.S. Lewis says this about pride. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. As long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. What do you trust in? Where is your confidence Are you a prideful person? Do you have trouble saying you're or seeking humility that you need help? A proud person cannot enter the kingdom of God. To enter the kingdom of God it obligates one to say I am nothing and God is everything. Can you say that? Can you say that? In God's sovereignty we see that he is over the nations, that he brings good out of evil. Also, that he judges the prideful, that he destroys them, and also that he is executing final judgment. This is verses 15 through 16 in, this, in Obadiah. Verses 15 through 16. It begins by referring to the day of the Lord. If you've been with us through our study in the Minor Prophets, you'll know that many of the Minor Prophets has focused in on this day of the Lord. It is a day of reckoning. It is a day of judgment in which all people will come to an account, held to an account, It says, the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountains, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. The standard on which God will judge these nations is on account of what they have done to others. And so the nation of Edom has treated others brutally, brutally, And so God says, these things I will pour back on you. We must see that as God executes this judgment, that it's not revenge. You see, God doesn't get just revenge. He makes all things right. It's not revenge. It's an establishing of righteousness. God's justice eliminates evil. We struggle sometimes, Christians struggle sometimes with this concept of revenge. And when we look to Romans, we see that Paul says that we should not return evil for evil, that we should not seek revenge. You see, the problem is that our attempts to seek revenge and to do vengeance, to take the place of God, they only instigate more evil. But you see, when God takes care of evil, evil is wiped out. And he's making things right. Only God can do this. We see this same approach, how God is taking care of evil, in Matthew chapter 25 as well. It's verses 31 through 46, if you want to write that in your notes. And Jesus says one day, he is going to separate, separate two groups, that are the sheep and the goats. And the way that he will determine which side they go to is how they have treated others, especially those groups that are easily oppressed, those who are in prison, widows, orphans, these groups. And so, God executes this final judgment. What are we to do until then when it comes to evil and how it confronts us? How are we supposed to treat other people? This is a question we must ask. And we need to look to Luke chapter 6, verses 31 through 38. If you read this carefully, if you read Obadiah carefully, and you've been reading the Bible, this is why Bible study is so important, so that you can connect the dots of what's going on. And 15, verse 15 of Obadiah, he said, As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. And Jesus says something very similar to this in Luke chapter 6. If you'll turn to Luke chapter 6 with me. Beginning in verse 31. While God will defeat all evil by putting on their heads what they've done to others. This is how Jesus tells his people in the meantime to treat others. Verse 31. And as you wish others would do to you, do so to them. And lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Verse 37, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. You see, God was speaking of judgment, that what these people had poured out would be poured back on them. Jesus speaks in the same way, but in a unique way, saying, if you do good, that will be poured back to you in the end, that you will be judged as faithful. And you see, Jesus also taught us how to do this when he went to the cross and died for his enemies. He died for those who hated him, who would curse him and despise him, who would spit on him. And he said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He died for you and for me. And it says that we were far off, that we were enemies. Yet he died for us. And he says, come to me. You see the difference here. What happens is our standard for treating others in the kingdom isn't measured by another's actions, but by God's actions on our part. This is how we are to treat others in the meantime as we wait for God to perfectly judge evil. To perfectly judge evil. Our actions are not a reaction to others. It is a reaction to God and His grace and His deep, deep love. You see, as we wait for God's judgment in which He will perfectly execute, which He will perfectly destroy all evil, what God has called us to do is to treat others as we would like to be treated. And the way that we learn to do that is in a Savior who would die for His own enemies. So there should be no limit to your graciousness, church. There should be no limit to your forgiveness because God has not shown a limit to you. He has forgiven you. And as we do this, we wait, knowing that God will execute justice that he will do it perfectly and that he will destroy all evil. I also put a verse there, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. We're not going to read that, but I just wanted you to see there is a sense in which God's justice is done now. It's, we're responsible to see it done, and this is done through government, through institutional authorities. These are the ones who do justice now. And again, this goes. To, this is right after Paul has told God's people, don't seek vengeance. You don't do that. It's not your responsibility. It is the governments who are ministers of God, according to Romans 13, and then at the final day, it is God's responsibility. God's responsibility. The second point, eschatological hope, promises for God's people. We have seen that God is sovereign over the nations. He is sovereign. He will bring good out of evil. God will destroy those who are prideful. And he will execute the final judgment. And then the eschatological hope. The promises for God's people. These are in verses 17 through 21. First, it's, it's preservation. Preservation. Verse 17. In Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. We should partly understand this as God returning some of the people from exile. You see, it's miraculous that God's people would be taken all the way to Babylon for the evil that they do. The Babylonians would come and drag them away. But God would install a king who also did not call upon him and that king somehow in an incredible act of kindness tells God's people, I'm going to send some of you back to Jerusalem and they're going to rebuild the temple. It's absolutely incredible that, that we even see Israel as a people anymore. This is only an act of God's providence and of his wisdom and faithfulness. And so in a sense, we see that the preservation is God's continuance of His people. And that's happened so that we could also be here, so that a Savior would come through His people, through the line of David. But also, God's preservation is always an end-time hope that we, even if we die now, we will meet God and we will be together forever in His kingdom. I want to read to you a quote from J.I. Packer as he talks on this. He says, We have, and this is in your notes, we have recast Christianity into a mold that stresses happiness above holiness, blessings here above blessings hereafter, health and wealth as God's best gifts, and death, especially early death, not as thankworthy deliverances from the miseries of a sinful world, but as the supreme disaster. Is our Christianity out of shape? Yes, it is. And the basic reason is that we have lost the New Testament's two world perspective that views the next life. I hear it's turning. That views the next life as more important than this one and understands life here as essentially preparation and training for the life hereafter. You see, our preservation is that in Christ, in the Father, we will never die. We continue to hope. We continue to trust. And if we pass from this life, if a loved one passes on, we even rejoice because we know that to be absent with, from the body is to be present with the Lord. Is this your hope? We've studied this throughout the Minor Prophets. Is this your full hope? Is this what you look to? Is this what you trust in? You know, it's incredible this Christian who is on at death row in Iran and could be executed at any time. He seems to trust in something that's not here, or he would have already given up. Do you trust in something that's not here? We will be preserved. Also, God's people will receive an inheritance. These are the promises, an inheritance, verse 19 through 20. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. Those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in S-Sarephad, Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negev. What we see here is a full restoration. You see, God's, the land of God's people has been taken over by enemies. And God says, there's a day when I will restore all of it. He will give the land that enemies have taken over and He will give it to all His people. And even the land of the Edomites who have treated them wrongfully, God will give over to His people. This is full restoration. This is the inheritance. But as we look to the New Testament, we see that the land was not the only concern, not even the main concern for Christ. It wasn't necessarily the land that was the inheritance. Look at First Peter verses, 1, 3, 3, chapter one, verse three through four. These are in your notes. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Our inheritance, eschatologically speaking, in times, is in the Father, our relationship with Him, and that He will give us all that we need. He will give us peace. He will give us Himself. So, Obadiah, speaking of the inheritance of God's people, that they shall dwell in the land and that they shall dwell in peace. This is what is so remarkable, is their enemies are not here anymore. The people are reunited together and they are not having to worry about enemies coming in from the outside. This is us. This is us as well. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You are established. You are secure. You don't have to worry about things going on around you. It's in Christ that all your security is. Colossians 3.15 And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. Just as God's people here in Obadiah were dwelling together in peace not with the threat of their enemies we should dwell in peace this is the hope that I, Obadiah is pointing towards, that God's people will dwell in peace, and we should do, do so now as we await, as we await. The final decision of God. This is in verse 21. The rule in the dominion of God. It says in verse 21, Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to, the Mount es- to, to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This word saviors, it's actually the word that comes from the book of Judges. The book of Judges. It's when there are judges ruling over God's people. And what it's saying is that God's people will go and they will rule on Mount Zion. Jesus says a similar thing that will hopefully clarify this. Matthew 2. 19 verse 28 in your notes, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you in the new world when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The word saviors points to those who judge in God's stead. They do it for God. So Jesus said, these will judge on the, the 12 tribes of Israel. Also, 1 Corinthians 6, 2-3. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? The saints will judge the world. This is what verse 21 is pointing towards. When God's people will dwell on Mount Zion, and they even will be judges. But, this is no reason to be prideful, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. We judge only because God has given the opportunity to judge. We still judge under God, the Lord. He reigns. This is his dominion. In Psalm chapter 22, verse 28, the language is extremely similar. This is what Obadiah is referencing. The interesting thing is that Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. It's the psalm that Jesus quotes when he's on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at the end of the psalm, it says, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Surely this verse in Obadiah is pointing to a messianic time when God will reign. The same language, Revelation chapter 11 verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdom of the world of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. People, this is our hope. This is what we we are moving towards. As we've said in the other minor prophets, Jesus, all of this was fulfilled, began to be fulfilled in Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, and we are waiting. It's the now and not yet that we are in God's kingdom, and we are waiting for him to establish it perfectly, when all evil will be defeated, and we will dwell in complete peace together. It references Mount Zion multiple times here. And I just want to point this out. We've used this in the Minor Prophets already, but it's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24. It's speaking of Christ. And it says, But you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. As you come to Jesus, you come to Mount Zion, the place of God's dwelling. And this is where his people and he will reign forever and ever. And so the message of Obadiah, the message of Obadiah is that God is sovereign over the nations. He is the only one who will bring good out of evil. He will judge all the prideful. You cannot enter God's kingdom if you're a prideful person. It requires saying, I am nothing. And He is everything. God will judge all evil. In the end times, God will take care of all evil. And the implication of this is that now we are to treat others with such kindness and grace. Because Jesus has taught us this kindness and grace. And that God, when He comes, He will seek the true vengeance. To true vengeance. And then, the eschatological hope the promises to God's people. I'm going to invite the deacons to come forward. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning.